So the idea that the game is ninety nine percent mental is not even close. Like you can't you can't outthink um, a, a, an unprepared body, or you know your skill set is going to be limited by your skill set. Doesn't matter how well you think. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is a slightly different one because we're talking about mental skills. We're not talking about the physical, we're not talking about the technical and tactical, we're talking about the mental and the psychological. So in this episode, we've got Aaron Walsh, who has an extensive experience in this area, but not a standalone experience, an experience that is linked to coaching, and that's why we've got him on. So for anyone that believes the mental side of performance is an important one to develop, this episode is for you. So it's not standalone sessions, group sessions, writing down goals and aspirations. It might be some of that, but a lot of it is integrated within coaching sessions themselves, whether it be strength and conditioning sessions, whether it be speed sessions, whether it be um, coaching sessions on the on the pitch, whether it be conditioning, it can be integrated into a multitude of different kinds of sessions. And that's why I've got Aaron on to explain how and why. So a really interesting episode coming up, which I'm sure you'll love. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Play. Play is the leader in high-performance athletic floor and strength equipment globally. So with offices in the US, Australia and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end experience by collaborating with organisations through their own proprietary formula to create a world-class environment for coaches and athletes alike. Play's Achieve 18mm Rubber and Attack Turf has been the cornerstone of training facilities for over a decade. With the addition of the new Icon X Rack Range, Play are once again set to elevate the industry. If you're interested in knowing more about Play, check out their website, play.us, that's P-L-A-E U-S. Also sponsoring this podcast is Vald. So I'm really proud to have Vald as a sponsor again, and after a recent visit to Vald HQ in Brisbane for their annual Vildcon event, it's incredible to see how far they've come as a company since I last visited uh, at the start of 2018. So from a very humble office, of less than 20 employees back then. It's amazing to see how far they've come. They now employ a global team of more than 200 that support clients across 100 countries, including many of the world's elite and professional sporting organizations. So an incredible uh, rise to where they are now. This is a huge testament to just the impact they're having across the industry with their innovation, but also continued commitment to support clients. So if you're a performance practitioner, you probably know all about VALD, but if not, I'd recommend that you check them out at valdperformance.com. So without further ado, over to the episode with Aaron Walsh. Aaron Walsh, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Hey mate, thanks for having me. Delighted to uh, be on on your early morning. Yeah, thank you very much. It's a frequent thing when I'm getting on, getting people on from uh, Australia, and New Zealand. So it's uh, it's not a problem. Slightly different in terms of topic for our regular audience, which is S and C's, uh, rehabbers, sports scientists, physios. But I think this is. Su- 
probably more relevant and getting more relevant than ever in terms of the mental skills performance. So it's, it's a pleasure to have you on. So in prep for this, I was trawling through your Twitter and your, and your blog, and I, I would recommend anyone do that because there's so much stuff there as we discussed before. But anyone that hasn't done that and doesn't know who you are, would you mind just giving us a little bit of background on you? Yeah, so uh, Kiwi boy, um, brought up in rural New Zealand, um, just come from a real sporty background. So I can't remember days without sport. So rugby in the um, in the winter, um, wasn't allowed to play football. That wasn't even an option in my family. Um, cricket in the summer and um, golf. So they were sort of the things we sort of mucked around with. And I suppose... Um, you know, coming out of a, a sort of a small community, you know, rural community and like real connection, family, it was a real, real part of my upbringing, which I think has sort of served me well as you get in sort of the roles I've had and um, then sort of just muddled my way through school, mucked around, I suppose. And, you know, I was there to play rugby and eat lunch and that was about it. And then <laughs> sort of obviously discovered that I had to have a brain a little bit later in life. Um, but, you know, in my, my younger years, um, really enjoyed rugby, played, you know, as much to the highest level. I was a bit of a battler, to be you know honest. I wasn't great, but I loved it and I loved my mates and enjoyed that side of it. But was always sort of intrigued by the performance side, like just, you know, obviously in my own story, having some potential but not realising that knowing hundreds of kids I went to school with and I mean you have a look at like New Zealand secondary schools rugby team or you know any academy and like where are they now would be a great series and wondering you know sort of why why did it seem like these people made it and other people didn't and sort of led me on a journey went to the US the early 2000s um, ended up marrying a girl from Connecticut and still together 23 years later which is awesome Um, we have two kids a 19 year old daughter at uni who's yeah as everything you can imagine and then we have a 14 year old son who is a chip off the old block who is sports mad and sort of just goes to school I suppose and um, suppose when we were in the US was when I sort of first got exposed to the mental side like um, I was just working in sports management and sort of saw these guys that were incredible and sort of some made it some didn't and I, I recall a real pertinent sort of conversation for me that was a catalyst to the work that I've done since this is 20 years ago and it was a spring training in um, Phoenix, Arizona and uh, I was looking out over the field, 200 young guys, like they're all machines like from my perspective and I was sitting next to the manager of one of the big league teams and I just said how many of these guys make it and he said 8% of guys that get drafted end up putting on a big league jersey so I said, what's the difference? So they all look the same. They're all, you know, physically pretty good and they've got great skill set. And he said, oh, it's the top two inches. And I said, oh, what do you guys do about that? And he said, nothing. (laughs) Just walked away. And so sort of like, sort of positions, like it was a really important like conversation for me to understand, like we have this world out there and the mental side of performance and the perception, I suppose, of how we see it, how we value it versus the reality is incredibly different. And so I suppose the last 20 years I've been trying to normalize it. Um, And I suppose we've got past that point now and sort of a whole lot of my focus and my work now is on trying to integrate it to make it more effective in teams. 
which is what we're going to dive into the next 45 minutes. But for, from someone that's over there, people maybe in the US or maybe who haven't got that kind of core rugby culture will look and go, how's that place over there that doesn't have many people in it absolutely dominated in terms of rugby union? What is it, from, from your perspective, what is it about rugby union in New Zealand and the people and the culture and like, all encompassing what makes you guys be able to do what you've done? I think you've described it. Okay. Like okay. It's part of the institution of our country. Like it's like, you know, you grow up worshipping the All Blacks or your provincial team or your super rugby team. Like I'm a bit older, so we had a Hawks Bay as when I from, so I just – from when I was five years old, I went to every Hawks Bay game with my dad. We had a club team. I went to every club sad day. I played every single week for my club. Like it was just, it was, wasn't a aspect of life. It was probably pretty central to our life. And, and I think you have this combination of the rural community, rugby, hardworking, um, connected, enjoy themselves. And that's sort of, the ethos, I suppose, of New Zealand rugby. And then once you have that that hotbed, then all the best kids play rugby, <laughs> all the best athletes. So we get the best of the best as far as that's probably changing now. I'd say it's slightly changing now where like the fastest growing sport in New Zealand is basketball um, by far. Yeah, so sort of there is a shift. The playing numbers aren't probably what they used to be, but I think that's more globally than it might be. And also with the CTE stuff now, getting more broadcast and, you know, like mums are worried about their, the head injuries of their kids. So it's, it's probably in a real changing of the guard, I suppose, now. Like, be interested to see where the sport goes in the future. But it is part of our country. It's at the very core fabric. Like, if you talk to any New Zealander, probably the what, – what are you most proud of? Like, the All Blacks are going to be in the top five. Like, here's a little country with what has been probably up to the last decade, I suppose, the one of the most dominant – teams in history and i think that that's this makes us proud pretty happy about that yeah Love to hear that. so in terms of the mental side i listen to talk sport radio station here and it talks about obviously football being the, the prime um talking point but when you talk about rugby talk about rugby league anything the pundits will talk about the mental side of performance whether it's england missing penalties which we've done forever um, missing drop goals, whatever it is, the mental side always comes up. But from your opinion, what's the perception of the mental side versus what you believe is actually the, in the reality of its impact? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be quite measured when you talk about the subject um, <clears throat> because it isn't it is a foundation at the highest level, but it's not a necessity till you get there. It's probably the best way to describe it. So there's a point where physicality. So And also I think like in a conversation like this, so I would say like a game like rugby, it's 60% of your performance will be physical and skill-based. 20% would be your tactical understanding of the game and how to play it. And probably the other 20 is the mental. That might even be too high. So the idea that the game is 99% mental is not even close. Like you can't, you can't outthink um an unprepared body or you know your skill set is going to be limited by your skill set doesn't matter how well you think and i think that's probably the part where people don't quite understand so you know like um 
And also, I suppose, considering the sport, so a sport like rugby would say be a 60-20-20 split, um, there's other sports that are much more mental. So I sort of divide sports into three categories. So um, one that I don't really know much about, they're endurance sports. They're just the mental people who do Ironmans and (laughs) marathons. Then there's sports where you initiate the movement. And there's sports where you respond to the movement. So so for a sport like football, I know a lot part of your audience enjoys football, there's probably only three or four times in the game where you initiate the movement. So whether you're throwing the ball in, you're taking a free kick, taking a penalty kick, or if you're a goalkeeper, you know, that would be about it. Um, but there are the spaces where probably the mental side is more important. So if you talk about like a game like golf, like you can't outthink a bad golf swing but golf requires the mental side higher than probably a sport like rugby where basically 90% of the game unless you're a line out thrower or a goal kicker or you're kicking for touch you're responding so you're reacting to movements that are in front of you and you don't have time often there to think like you might have a little bit of time you might be thinking about what's happened in the past maybe a little bit but you're required to have you know, you're required to be active in your mind to be able to respond to what's coming either right in front of you or, or what's about to come. Whereas, you know, the sports where you tend to see the most mental breakdowns or failures would be the sports where you initiate. So, <clears throat> you know, going back to the England narrative, which I think is changing. I thought they were quite a lot better in the, the penalties recently, which is good credit to Gareth Southgate and the team there. But, um, you know, free kick or penalty kick from the penalty spot you have to initiate that movement. So there's space. There's space between, you know, when you go back to your mark to when you hit that ball. You don't have that when you're making a midfield run. You're just reacting. You're just playing. You're just doing. So I think we have to um, probably couch the discussion in the context. Like the sport provides a lot of context for how mentally, uh, what the mental demands are. So when someone says to me like, you know, what do you think about, you know, what's a good mental approach to rugby? I'd be like, well, what does a mentally proficient rugby player look like? What are the demands of the game and how do we meet those? So that I would start probably more like a needs analysis, like from a, like if you're talking like from an SNC background, I would never start with, here's four theories of psychology that you need to know. I'd be like, that's irrelevant. What's relevant is you're going to have demands placed on you mentally. How are we either equipping you or preparing you to meet those. And those demands aren't always collective, though there may be collective demands, which would be, you know, the team you're playing against, whether it's home or away, whether it's a final or a non-final, but they're much more individual's demands. So like what what are the, the mental demands on a prop are going to be different from the mental demands on a 10? So it's not just the simple like, oh, yeah, they're just mentally weak or just mentally fragile. And, you know, I think that's where, you know, I, I, I probably jump on on Twitter a little bit and just try to educate people like, like you know, I think I did a, a, a tweet the other week that ended up getting, I think, two and a half million views or something. And it was basically the idea that, hey, this is what pressure is. <laughs> You know, it's universal. Everybody's going to experience it. can be over, you know, like just there were four or five things that I knew to be true about pressure. And just so when people would watch it, they'd understand going, listen, it's, I can just look at someone and say they choked. You have no idea. <laughs> you have no idea. It might have actually been a technical thing for a goal kicker. Just might not have had his foot in the right place. They may have scored the try beforehand and be fatigued. 
And so their legs are heavy and they just didn't have the power that they had, say, at minute three. Like The mental side is really, really important. And I think I've, I've, I've written about this before. I think we overvalue it at times and undertrain it. It's probably the best way to describe it. Does that view with it, everyone chucks it out, the 99% mental, does that help or hinder someone like yourself? And the, hinder. The, the spe- okay, yeah. Massively hinder because what the people are trying to say is that all of the performance coming up, what 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 they mean, which is actually true, once you get to the highest level where your physicality and your technical ability and your tactical ability are equal, what will be the point of difference then? Will your ability to execute your skill set and deliver under pressure? Like that is a point of difference, unbelievably so, and we can't argue with that. But to say that that's the only factor that would determine performance at the highest level is ridiculous because, you know, like it's come out of a World Cup playing South Africa and like you stand next to them. They're massive men. <laughs> like it's just, and they bring on their bomb squad and you're like, oh my goodness, that's as good as. So you can be the most mentally aware, mentally proficient, mentally excellent athlete, but you will be trumped by a physical, physically superior athlete. So just going back to the kind of mental skills industry, how many is there? How many is there of you kind of placed in organisations across the world at that highest level? Is it? Is it? A, is, it a, is it? Grow, is it growing? Is it? Is it spark? Okay. It's growing. It's. I think the question you know now, which was sort of the body of my recent research, was like, listen, I had a perception that I think we've normalised it now. So if you talk to any high performance director, any head coach, who's you know has a holistic view of the game, that's probably the best way. I'm trying to say something nicely. Um, they would say the mental side contributes to performance. I don't think anyone would deny that. And that's what, when I did my research, I got 100% affirmative replies on that statement. But when we got to the point of how many of you or how many of your clubs, teams have a strategy, it was 11%. So so what you're saying is correct. Like it's, 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 I suppose it's valued if you want to use that term, but the perception is among clubs, we value it a lot. And I would say my reality would be you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. that, that, that's great for you that they, they value yeah. it. They value it. They don't implement it. Therefore, yeah. there's that gap yeah. in between of we, we'd yeah. love to do it, but it's, we just don't understand yeah. it. We don't know like, like I'm starting a webinar series tomorrow with mostly performance directors and coaches, oh, nice. and there'll be about 50 on that. And I have to be quite, quite clear with them. And then half and half will be – um, performance directors, coaches, um, GMs, and the other half are practitioners. So it's actually a really nice combo because what I want to get across is clubs don't actually know what they're doing in this space. Very really. Okay. And it's actually, and we can look at it and go, because I've heard heaps of sports psychs say, oh man, I had a bad experience here and didn't have like, they don't know what to do. And part of our responsibility is to define the work and to help it be clear on where impact can occur. And we have to actually coach the clubs and understanding what actually would a excellent mental performance strategy and mental performance program look like in this club today. Right, let, let's go there because there'll be plenty of people listening who are SNC coaches, sports scientists, rehabbers, physios going, but what is it? Like they're maybe not in a 
MLB club when they've got the the resource to have someone like you in or whatever organization it is they're probably wondering okay Aaron tell me what this is what is what is mental skills and then we'll talk about building the structure and all that kind of stuff yeah so so if you think about what it is well I've got a real simple definition why why would we focus on the mental side of the of the game um because it's the bridge to take capability and turn it into delivery so you've got lots of capable people. So if we were to say capability, like you think from the SNC and sports scientists world, which I love, they would get frustrated as I get frustrated looking at an athlete, looking at the numbers, looking at the GPS, looking at the workload, like reviewing their trainings, looking at the work they're doing, and then they turn up on Saturday and we don't see that, right? We just don't get to see the full spectrum of their capability on display, which in the end as a coach, that's what I work for. I work to see guys deliver, not to see guys have potential. And so, you know, when we have that, we go, this is their capability. So so everyone has a gap, I think. Like at the, the top guys, the gap's small. So what we see at the top, top level and the top athletes, are, what they deliver is really close to what we think their capability is. The guys that don't make it are the guys that we think their capability up here, the delivery ends up being a lot lower. And we go, why? You've got all the tools, you've got all the skills, you've got all the physical stuff. And that's where I go, this is where the mental matters. Because to me, my definition of high performance is capability minus interference. So what's getting in the way? So what what is, and then once we get past that, is how do we actually turn this into a, a place of strength? How do we grow you in this area? And so a couple of philosophies that probably undergird that thinking would be, you know, number one, this is what it is. It's the ability to bridge the gap between what you're capable of and what you need to deliver. How do we do that? To me, there's a real clear thing. We treat it like a skill. And that's probably the real most important part. So like when I meet with an athlete, I will go through a, a needs analysis. So assess, prescribe, monitor. <laughs> like it's, it's a skill. So this is how I would develop other skills. So this is a, a skill you can think better, but you don't have the tools. or you know. So for me, there's three things I want to provide to an athlete. There's knowledge, tools, and support. Okay. So no different to any of the SNC sports scientists people. Like this is what you've got to do. So, so how do you translate your knowledge into meaning? How do you take the tools that you have and employ them to help grow people? And then how do we keep trying providing support so that they would be patient in the journey of maturation? So, um, so, so that George, would be to me this answer. Yeah. Perfect. So sorry to interrupt there. So you've got academies just off the top of my head because it's it's relevant to me and my personal experience. Academy football, you've got to have a psycho at a certain level, you've got to have a psychologist at, at some point in that delivery for an academy. How does what you're saying differ to what a psychologist would do? It depends on the um on the brief. Okay. So to me, well-being and performance psychology are connected but very different. Okay, so like there's a lot of focus like on well-being, which is great. I, to me, like well-being is the to, is probably the foundation of performance, but it's not the totality. So you can have some really um, excellent people who have really awesome well-being whose lives are really organized and they can't f- function under pressure. 
So it's not, it's, there needs to be more than that. It is the foundation. So I think when you talk about a psychologist being present, like what would what are they there for? Are they there to help the academies navigate through growing up in a football academy and dealing with mum dad? Like, is it a well-being or actually is it something different, which is once those foundations are in place, how do we then help you actualize your potential when we need it to be delivered? So I think the performance side and the well-being, though they're connected, you can't separate and go, oh, well, that guy's a well-being that. No, your well-being and your performance have some relationship. But what was really interesting, which may be interesting for you, for your listeners and you in the academy space, has been the idea that when we really talked about well-being and drilled down within a couple of teams that I've worked with, what we found that we thought the logical conclusion was if guys can manage themselves well away from the field they'll be better when they come in and that and when they did have well-being issues it was because of life outside of footy and we actually found it was completely opposite so it was guys experience in the environment we created conversation with coaches selection deselection and the inability to go home and not carry that with them that was the biggest detriment to their well-being interesting really interesting so we've got the, the bulk of the listeners, like I said, strength and conditioning coaches, sports scientists, rehab physios, they're, I'm hoping that they're agreeing with you that the mental skills and the mental side of performance is important. But the majority of them won't have the the finances, the ability to have that support on site. How can we create or how can someone like you come in and create or facilitate them to create themselves this model that integrates the mental skills performance and the, the physical, the technical and tactical stuff. Yeah. What, how, well, how, well, how can I we think, go about that? Well, I think it, it's, once again, we go back to context, right? So when I'm, you know, when I'm talking to teams, the first thing I want to know out is what is your approach? So I've got like five different, um, I suppose levels might be a wrong, wrong way of saying it. So number one, you have no program, um, which tends to happen if the team is either successful or they don't think they need it. Number two, you have a minimalist program. So that would be someone comes in in the preseason, has a chat, maybe comes back at the end of the year, you know. Number three, which is by unfortunately the most common approach, would I would call a deficit, deficit program. And here's Jimmy. Jimmy's with us for the year. We all love Jimmy. Um, he's going to sit at the back of the room. And if you're underperforming, go have a chat the worst thing you could possibly do for integration. Um, you're sending a message straight away that the mental side is only for underperforming athletes. It's rubbish. Like, then the fourth sort of option would be a skill model. So we treat it like a skill. Um, we go through the same discipline that we would in other areas of development, whether that's be physical or technical. We would approach it like a skill, I suppose the best way of saying. And then the final one would be integrated, which is sort of, I suppose in my experience with Chiefs and with Scotland, this is probably where we've got to now, whereas the mental side becomes a big consideration of decisions in the environment. So how we coach, who we recruit, um, you know, how we play, how we train. Like it's, it's actually, there's a mental component almost everywhere of we're considering it at least or we're asking the question like what, what messages do we want to send from our players at the end of a camp that would have the best psychological impact upon them or, you know, 
if we're going into a team meeting before we play our biggest test match, what are the key messages that we need to be saying? How do we keep it simple, but how do we create some sort of emotion? Do we want emotion? Is emotion good to have that close to performance? So these are all the questions of, hey, when you ran that meeting with the D or you did a line out meeting, how do you reckon that went? Was your information clear enough? Do you think that they got it? So does that make sense? Like now it becomes something that's right in our, the way we make. And that's why I probably define it the easiest way is the way we make decisions. Because it's not just about, here's the mental guy. It's about, have we considered this? And do we have expertise and input? If we were to make certain decisions, we want the side to at least be part of the conversation. So this is where I, I, I kind of wanted the conversation to go. So I'm glad you've, you've kind of got us there without me even facilitating that. But this integrated approach, hence the name of integrated approach, you're not wheeled out on a Tuesday at 10 o'clock for a half an hour session on mental skills with 35 guys. You're in meetings, you're in sessions, and you're helping, and this is me asking you a question if I'm, if I'm right here, you're, you're helping these guys get a, deliver a message that is consistent, is actually uh, thought about, is considered with that mental skills performance head on rather than a let's do a half an hour mental skills practice with 35 guys like is that am i getting right is that right completely so so for example the rugby teams i work with i will have we do what we call a mind gym every single week if we play so it's five to seven minutes and it'll come out of a previous meetings that have happened say maybe on a sunday i'm just going through a normal week we'll meet with the head coach and say how do we want to play this week what's our game plan then secondly what 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 part of our mentality needs to be right where right at its peak for us to deliver this game plan and so like if we're coming up against a team where we know we're going to have to be quite brutal in, in the collision area, then you're going to set your mindset a little bit different. Like you're going to have a bit of an edge to your week around. It's going to be a big week physically. We're going to have to be up for the battle. If it's a game where we want to be a bit more courageous and creative and use the ball and, okay, we're going to have to do a bit more messaging around freedom and courage and what to do if we make mistakes and how do we stay connected to what we're trying to do, knowing that if we're going to be courageous, there's going to be mistakes and that's just part of the game. So, um, that would be be one part of it and then working with the leaders around their messaging so they can drive that mindset throughout the whole week so it's just not coming from me it's coming from the leaders so we'd have an, a, a leadership meeting where we'd agree on the mind we could just call it a mindset anchor if that makes sense so this is what we're going to anchor our week around from a mindset and we just all buy into that and we just run and deliver that and the way we train and the way that we go about our work will be really sort of built upon that mindset and everybody buys into it well hopefully everyone buys into it and that sort of allows that would be the most integrated so now you've got a message that's being talked about when you train when you're in the gym you know when you're in your uh, defensive your unit meetings that's now we're actually beginning to consider this side and go okay what's our mindset going to look like and then i'll just deliver a five to seven minute session to the team which then will be reinforcing that mindset but then also providing the tools to make it real so we're just going to take a very quick break in this chat with Aaron. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we discuss uh, developing ownership with our athletes. We all want self-sufficient athletes that take ownership of what they do. So how can we foster that within strength and conditioning sessions, within conditioning sessions, within technical and tactical sessions? A really interesting part two coming up with Aaron.
This episode of the Pacer Performance Podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientist to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. And now back to the episode with Aaron. So unlike an SNC coach where everyone trots off into the gym and is is the, the session is run by that person, and that's kind of obviously there's other facets to that role, but that's their delivery. This is your facilitating other people to deliver it within their environment. Then bringing people together to kind of anchor it and create consistent messages. Yeah, I mean, mostly the players. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, like, most of the other staff are so busy doing their stuff. Gosh. But, like, like our head of SNC will want to know what the anchor is for the week pretty early. Like, they'll be like, okay, what are we driving this week, Walshie? Like, what's going to be the key stuff? What have we agreed on? And then we'll just, like, say the SNC coaches that I work with, I check in every single day with them, the head of SNC. Like, what are you seeing? What are you feeling? What do we got here? Are we driving this well enough? Uh, any red flags or, you know, any players looking really good? Like, how do we? So it's a it's a really collaborative effort. And that's where I think the idea of we bring someone in to the building. So this is where most clubs get it wrong. They go, oh, we've got, we got 30,000 pounds. Let's get someone. Okay. All right. Box ticked. What do they do? But you'll get four um, people over here for thirty grand based on based yeah. on salaries currently. <laughs> I'm only joking. Yeah, but then going back to your question, which I think is important to answer, like I understand that that probably it shouldn't be this way, and this is what I'm trying to challenge. That often a guy like me would be we've filled all the spots, be good to have. Um, but I remember a player last year in a radio interview in New Zealand said the second person I'd hire after the head coach would be the mental skills coach. But that's just his, you know, obviously his, but you hear that quite a lot. Like, it's so important, it's so important. Okay, well, why then do you have four analysts, six S and C? I'm not saying it in a bad way. You understand what I'm saying, right? The actual value that you're projecting around the work never really translates into reality. Um, And so, like, if a team doesn't have the capability, then I think quite a bit of my work has been, and I wrote... Uh, a few articles about this and uh, around, you know, here's five things for a coach or an SNC coach that you just need to know about that you can learn from psychology that will make you a better coach. It's really simple. Like they don't learn the way you did. Like that changes things if you understand that. Um, the words that you say to them as they leave will be the words they'll replay all night. So it's just, just little things you can learn, you know, like, and where would you start? So if I, I'd say, like, it's easy for S&C guys. The best place to start to build your mental performance is your habits. So if you start there, then you're away. Like, it's going, okay, well, have you organized your week? It's a great question. Do you know what's important this week? Um, how are you prioritizing your time? What do you think you should be focusing on? How does that relate back to your performance? So when you're in here in the next 45 minutes, 
we want to link what you're doing in here to your performance, but also to your wider development plan. So now you get them taking ownership and thinking about what's happening and where things are going. And I think that the S&C, and particularly the medical staff, like the physios and that, boy, they play such an important role because they have so much interface with the players and, and shaping the mindset that the players end up adopting when they're in the environment. But S&Cs and fitness coaches will do that in terms of the physical side. So if we've got a we're working acceleration because that's part of the technical, tactical stuff, they will change their warm-up, modify the warm-up to make them fit for that purpose. So it's exactly the same principle. It's a skill, like you exactly. said. Yeah. Imagine if you don't have someone like me in the environment, you're an S&C coach, and say, hey, can, before we get started on the session today, can you just tell me what your focus is for the week around your performance and how can we help to help get that mindset right for the week ahead? Like, you can do that. <laughs> you don't have to have a psychology degree to do that. It's just go, what do you want to focus on and how can I help remind you or hold you accountable to that or help, you know, strengthen your resolve around that particular thing? So it might, and it's always the, the combo of the, the biopsychological, right? A player might come say, like, I'm just getting absolutely knackered out there and I just feel like I can't keep going, but I want to learn how to be more gritty in tough moments. Wow, that's a, that's a bag of lollies put in your hand, isn't it? <laughs> so I'm, I'm guessing that the majority of people, and you, you may tell me different, there's the, the, the number three, the level three, that um that deficit where you've got someone in the back going if it's not going well go see that person in the corner but there's majority of people are going to be one or two like they're potentially thinking about it or it's just they haven't got the staff or they haven't they the focus is elsewhere so but they're listening to this going this all makes so much sense i want to do something to kick off this process for myself and i want to get the three members of staff in the backroom team and we're going to move this forward a little bit. What would be your best place to start? Awesome. So, so going like like going back, you know how I talk, talk to you about different approach. That's only stage one of like four steps that I have strategically when working with the team. So the second step, which actually ties in nicely, is creating a, a simple framework. So like in the mental side, like a real simple fr- framework. I just call it a growth pyramid. So on the bottom is grow yourself. The next layer is grow your mindset. And the third layer is grow under pressure. And so, you know, like if I was a, if, if you're beginning the year, say if you're an S&C coach and you're sitting down with one of your athletes, you know, it's tough to do this with 30, but depending on how many you have, I'll just do a simple exercise. Let's call it your why, what, how, when, who. So this is to me the growing yourself. So why do you play the sport? It's your motivation. What are you trying to accomplish? Your aspirations, your goals. How do you think that you have you'll get there? It's about self awareness, development, focus. When do you reckon you'll do that? Time management. <laughs> who? Who's in your circle, and who do you want to be? Identity and support. So all of a sudden, then that simple five questions, you have a lot of information about your athlete. Then you go, okay, well, what habits do we need to grow? So I always think the first thing to grow is professionalism. Because professionalism requires such, and when I say professionalism, there's probably a better word than that. It's probably ownership. So, like someone asked me the other day, what's one quality that you would think is the king of all qualities in athletes? And I said, it's easy for me. It's ownership. It's not even close. Like, so the the guys that see you as the supporters, not the drivers of their development of their career, 
they're the they're the key guys because then they'll own they'll own they own their own development they own they own their own time they own what they're focusing on and you don't have to completely you know keep on pumping up motivation but i think the first thing would be grow your mind grow grow yourself so how are you growing yourself that's where i'd start the second thing is real simple grow your mindset so mindset to me is a pretty rudimentary definition it's how you see yourself and how do you relate to the world around you so, so I'll give you an example for a mindset going into a game. So athlete A, I see myself as an imposter and the game is a place where I get exposed. Athlete B, see myself as competent and the game is a place where I get to express myself and have impact. So just on those two extremes, right, most will fit in the middle. They won't probably be... But that mindset then determines everything. So going back to really psychology 101, which is cognitive behavioral theory, how you think determines how you feel, how you feel determines how you behave, how you behave determines how you, you, you perform. So we could say that your thinking is the foundation of your performance or will have massive impact upon you. So if you, it's always asked an athlete, if you see yourself as an imposter and the game's a place that you get exposed, how does that make you feel? Okay, anxious, worried. How does it make you behave? Hesitant, slow. How does it make you perform below your capability? Other side, you see yourself as competent in the game as we can have impact. How does it make you feel excited, confident? How does it make you perform with courage, belief? You know, how does it make you behave? You know, quick, I'm trusting, I'm there, I'm right. Then your performance goes up. Then the final layer to me is a bit of stuff around pressure, but I don't see much point, and this is probably where you know, might get frustrating or maybe a little bit controversial for people listening, that's fine, is why would you get someone to come in and do a session on mindfulness when you guys don't know how, guys don't know how to organize their week? <laughs> like these sexy little trinkets, like we're doing a visualization session. I would much rather get out your weekly diary and then we plan your week on what's important, what are you going to focus on and how to organize yourself. To me, that's much more of an important performance enhancer than that other sort of stuff. So that's why I sort of have that pyramid. It's like a hierarchy of needs. When it when it comes to that planning, because you mentioned that quite a few times, just on, again, my experience, and I think I've got it on the discussion points to, to come to later. There are plenty of head coaches. Well, I think there are plenty of head coaches, certainly in my experience, that love to have that loose and don't actually like to plan because for whatever reason, they think that everyone should be on their toes or they create this kind of fear around what's coming next. So if we lose on Saturday, you're in on Sunday versus win or lose, this is the plan. So how do we get around that situation when we're integrating this and the stuff that you're talking about in? Well, I love it because like that's sort of right in the wheelhouse of sort of what I've been talking about is you have two approaches to the mental side. You can have a strategic program or a reactive service. And I think this is what happens with coaches. They're either, you know, like if you, it, there's got to be flexibility, but this is our plan. This is what we're going with. This is what we do. And we trust if we do that well enough that we're going to come out on the right side of the ledger more times than not. Rather than you lose trust when you're inconsistent. And I think consistency through strategy, it's not blindness. Like you might have to be adaptable at times around your strategy. Um, but, you know, like there's a couple of the senior All Blacks that obviously I work with pretty regularly and every Sunday night they write out their week and they've been doing it for years and they wouldn't 
like what's important this week? What do I, what do I need to nail? It's on a piece of paper. It's got, you know, it's got clear outcomes. It's got clear inputs. It's got clear focus points. And I just think that your, your, your ability to analyze performance well will be directly connected to the consistency of your preparation. There will be people out there, certainly me, who have got players in, who've got athletes in mind, players in mind, who, when you're talking about doing that kind of understanding session, that kind of first session of the, of the building blocks, will go, I'm going to lose that person. That person's not going to not going to buy in. That person's going to go AWOL. So you've got these kind of non-responders who may think that that's not applicable to them. And I think as we go, as we go on, and you may disagree, but that they're probably coming less than 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, because people are starting to understand this side of performance. But how do we how do we make sure we're dragging them guys along with us? I think it's very much like I'm probably a little bit different. I don't really care about them in some ways. Um, I care about them as people, but I have a real clear principle about feeding the hungry. So my job's to create initial appetite. If you don't want to eat, that's your choice. But I'm not going to chase guys around the building all week, convincing them that they should be hungry. I just don't see any benefit to it. Now, here's the, the, the disclaimer. If they're 17 to 22, I'll be patient with them because they don't think they need it until they fail. Um, and once they fail, then you become valuable. Even though it's a deficit model, you can tra- transform that pretty quickly into a growth model if you've got a good relationship with them. Um, but I say every team I meet with at the start, listen, I'm not chasing you. I'm not messaging you. I'm not demanding one-on-ones. Um, if you want to grow, I'm going to give you everything I've got. But the choice is yours. That, that, that probably brings me on to something that I was going to mention just a minute ago was how does this differ when it comes to that, that youth population versus a more athletically developed population, older athlete? Um, different. So... Like people say to me, oh, you must struggle with older athletes. I'm like, no, not really. Because like I love the older athlete who says, and I, I see it as a great challenge. Yeah, I've never really done this stuff, so I'm not that interested. And I'll be like, sweet. And I'll always go back to them in a day or two going, imagine how much. Well, my challenge is normally you got three years left in your career. Why don't we eat everything we can out of it? You've got to this point without this. What if the last three years are your best? I haven't seen anyone say no to that yet. Because <laughs> it's it's not about whether you need it or not. Everyone needs it. Like everybody needs to have the right mental conditions to perform up to their capability. That's it's not even a discussion point. Now, whether people think they need help to do that, that's up for debate. And some people may be able to self-manage that. But the older athletes tend to They'll go through phases. It's just like it's like the younger athletes is no much different to the older ones in some ways. It's like the older guys will be like, I'm going well, yeah, I won't talk to you. I'll have chats, we'll stay close. Actually, I got an injury, I'm out of form. Hey, can we have a chat? <laughs> you know, whereas like to be honest, that's less and less. I would say that that eighty percent of the squad of the teams that I work with, we would have some sort of one on one interaction every two weeks. Doesn't have to be a one on one set up but it might be a chat after cha- training like hey what are you thinking about this or have you looked at this or you know I've just noticed this or something like that or they might come to me and say I'm losing confidence can we have a chat um, whereas the younger people this is the one that I like they're 
they're more they're more um, vulnerable, which is awesome. But also, I think that vulnerability at times isn't managed well, and it can be translated into making a whole bunch of excuses for themselves. When I, when I asked you when I asked you at the start what your um, job title was, you'd said director of mental performance, culture, and leadership, and I think this brings us on nice to that leadership piece. And I think in my in this context, I'd like leadership to be based on the audience, an SNC coach, sports scientist who's got a group and leading a group of athletes rather than leading a group of of staff. So you're leading a group of athletes, and I'd love to get your your take on the current generation of kind of younger athletes how we're engaging them, how we're not chasing them around, like you said, but bringing them in and and uh, facilitating S&C sessions. Whatever it is, how, what's your perspective on how we engage them, keep them in versus how we may have done that with generations gone? I think that the number one thing now with these guys is care has to be the foundation of your relationship. So, I mean, I think it was... Um, Teddy Roosevelt, or someone said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Now, that is hugely relevant. Like, if these kids don't think you care about the person as much as you care about the performer and that the relationship is transactional, you're stuffed, you're done with them. Do you think that's more now than ever? More now than ever, 100%. Yeah. Whereas in the past, you'd have players who'd be quite transactional. Like, I remember the early days, they come in, it's a job. And they don't really care if they like the manager or the coach of the time. It's fine. I'm here to do my job, um, you know, and we'll walk out at the end of the day and it's quite transactional. Now, these kids like this benefit having a 19-year-old and also working um, in this space is I've probably seen the shift the last three to five years where guys like Artie Sevier, um, guys like Anton Leonard Brown, who I work with a lot of the Chiefs, they're talking about mental health. They're talking about things that struggle. They're talking about the pressure they feel around games. And, and I think that there is such a benefit to the work that I do because it's normalizing it as far as the mental side is something that we really have to focus on. And, you know, what I've sort of seen is the conversations around mental health have nicely merged into conversations around mental performance because they're often linked. So, i.e., I don't have a high opinion of myself, which is a mental health issue. You can't tell me that doesn't now translate into the way they play. So, you know, sometimes the rugby's the vehicle to open up the wider conversation. And so, and because I'm not a clinical psychologist, that's an area I stay out of. I just said, we've got help in this area on performance. That's my complete focus. Um, but I can't be naive enough to not suspect that there are, there are links between that. But I definitely think the younger guys are way more open to having conversations in vulnerability around their own self which in the end tends to talk about their own performance linking in with that and probably reversing five minutes or so when you mentioned about ownership and de- and, and, and developing that and then this is definitely pertinent to the snc coach who are leading groups and um wanting to push that ownership onto the onto the athlete how can we go about that any any tips tricks yeah I mean, advice guidance that, yeah there's a saying that um <laughs> As you know, I've said it for a while, but it seems to resonate with people in that you have to build the trust, the bridge of trust in order to drive over the truck of honesty. 
So this is why I go back to care. Like the level of trust I have with someone is a level of accountability I can hold with them at the end of the day, not on paper, but in the real world. So you can have an S&C coach who says, I'm a hard ass, I'm going to keep them accountable. You won't keep them accountable unless they trust you and you, they think that you care for them. So, you know, I, I did, did, obviously I do quite a bit of reviews, like I review teams and seasons and performances. And in the last probably 10 or 15 years, I've had two teams that have come back who haven't said we need more accountability and honesty. Like everyone always says that. And those two teams, I remember interviewing the leaders of those organizations afterwards and said, you, man, you must have had a real focus on accountability and honesty. And they'll say, no, we've never talked about it. We've talked about trust and connection. And so the trust and connection enables effective accountability and honesty to take place. Because the moment you try and bring in a truck of honesty over a bridge that isn't strong enough, you collapse the relationship. So this is where the adaptability piece, I think as coaches is really important to us going, okay, well, we wanna create ownership. We wanna have an accountable environment. How do we create that? You know, well, first we create it by we've got to have trust. They've got to trust us and they've got to know that we care for them. And the deeper that is, is the more direct and honest and I suppose confrontational you can be because it's like kids, like, you know, you said you got a young one. Well, I've got older ones and, you know, like there's times where I have to sit my daughter down or my son down and I have to say, I just want you to know, you know, I'm going to correct you here, but these two things are never on the table. I love you unconditionally and I'm for you, okay? So let's remove that out, okay? Because if you don't have those two things answered, and I know it might not be that way in a coach-athlete relationship, but those two principles, then what do they question straight away? You don't love me, Dad. No, I love you too much and I care for you too much to allow this to go on and that's why we're having a chat. It's an expression of my care. But unless you've built up that trust and, you know, I suppose in some sense love for use of a better term, they're questioning the whole status of the relationship rather than hearing the message from you. Well, that coach don't like me. So I think it's really important we understand, especially with these kids coming up. Yeah, they're open. Um, they want to know you care. They want to trust you. And if you've got that, boy, they will do anything for you. Although I don't buy into the idea that they're lazy and unmotivated. I would say completely opposite. You've just got to know how to connect with them. So, you know, 20 years ago, did a player care about connection and the relationship they had with their S&C coach? Probably not much. Do they care about it now? Damn right they do. It's important for them to understand. I think that's a great, great place to uh, to round us off. But I've mentioned your Twitter account, and I'd, I'd yeah. recommend anyone who's interested in this area to, to dive into that because there's tons of stuff, there's tons of stuff there, and that'll link you to the blog and all that kind of thing. But is there any more structured places where people can go to learn more about you? Probably LinkedIn. Work? Okay, perfect. Yeah, I do a lot. Yeah, so I write longer form on LinkedIn, and you know, people have asked me over the years, why do you share so much information, and are you worried about your IP? I'm like, nah, I couldn't care less. Um, one, I would happen to you know be influenced by Wayne Smith, um, who's a great All Black coach, arguably one of the greatest rugby coaches in history. And I remember him saying, he said, give all your stuff away because it'll force you to go deeper in new ideas. And I really, and also the reality is, I can tell you everything that I'm thinking, but can you execute it? And you know this, that the beauties in the execution, like you can get a program from any trainer, right? 
and this is what they're doing at Arsenal or, you know, we just got this for Man City. Okay. Can you execute that with the same energy and engagement and intent? Don't know. But that's where the magic happens. It's not just in the information. So LinkedIn and then Twitter. Yeah, I just jump on Twitter every now and then. I I don't have a strategy. If I think something is interesting, I write. If I don't think I'm anything's interesting, I don't. So like I've had these social media companies try and say, we need a schedule, you need to do this. I'm like, nah. I don't want to write unless I think it's interesting. And if it's interesting to me, it might be interesting to other people. That's my theory. This is my social media strategy. That is the million dollar social media strategy you should be selling. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Right, mate. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for giving up an hour of your time. Really appreciate it. Great to connect and uh, for staying Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks tuning in to episode 472 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Aaron for giving up his time, sharing his knowledge and expertise early on the morning for me and late in the evening for him. Also, big thanks to the sponsors of today's episode who are Team Builder, Play and Vald. So the podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in and I'll talk to you next time.